Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to something to wrestle with. Brett's Pritchard. Well, you know. That's not a rib. She pooted. There's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. Was he there? I was there. I don't give a shit. I ain't scared of shit. I ain't scared of shit. Fuck him. You, Bruce. I love you. Double cheeseburger. Double cheese. Double mayo. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle With. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? Absolutely wonderful in the great state of my God, Texas. God's country. Well, I think a lot of people would argue that we spent the weekend in God's country. You and I had a little rendezvous in Hotlanta, Georgia, as you like to call it, but wasn't that hot. But it was pretty bad street USA, was it not? Well, I would say it was extremely hot. It was on fire with the little uh, Michael B.S. Haynes, the little Colby Reynolds, Riley Jr. the third, and uh, nice little sold out house at the punchline at Hotlanta, if you will. Yeah, how about that for a couple of surprise guests? The executive vice president of AEW, Cody, starts us off, and then to close the show, a staple here on something to wrestle. We thought it would never happen. You made the comparison last week to. Ricky Bobby's dad, Talladega Knights, Michael P.S. Hayes, Mr. Dude, Dude, <laughs> Dude himself actually showed up and, uh, man, to see him strut to the stage to the old bad street theme, that was a goosebump moment for the history of the show. For, for me was, was them singing bad street and the audience was there for it. And I, and I almost, I almost stepped on Michael because I always like to do that one part, the further down that rock you went, the batter it got to do. And Michael did it. And I was like, yes, favorite part. So I was a happy camper. I was happy they walked in the door and came in and actually experienced a little bit of the show in our audience. That was good stuff. It is good stuff. We've had a lot of good stuff on Patreon lately. You've been doing this day in history most every day and lots of live Q and A's. And if you've been missing out on some of that stuff, or even have footage from some of our live shows, you can check it out all right now, starting at just nine bucks over at patreon.com forward slash something to wrestle, but there's nothing like being at a live show and March 1st at the Mohegan sun in Connecticut. Here we come. That's the next time you and I are on the road. And we're bringing our pal, Eric Bischoff with us. Tickets are nearly sold out. 
uh, and I want to address here at the top of the show. There's been some rumor and innuendo that that show was canceled. It's not canceled. It's not rescheduled. It's not at a different location. It's not at a different time. It's not at a different date. It is exactly as it always was March 1st at the Mohegan sun tickets are on sale now, brucepritchard.com. And don't forget crown point, Indiana, the town I never thought I'd say on this show. We're coming on March 9th and the next day we'll be in Cleveland, Ohio. And the rumor and innuendo is that next week you and I are announcing some WrestleMania weekend times and dates. How about that? Can't wait. Can't wait. And I also cannot wait to get down under in Australia. I'm going to be there March 22nd. Going to be in Sydney, Australia. Melbourne coming to you March 23rd. And we're finishing up the tour in Brisbane on March 24th. It's a solo. I'm going to be Sans Conrad. And Sans Conrad means it'll be a sad Bruce. But I'll be happy to be down under and go to BrucePritchard.com right now to get your tickets for the Australia tour for Cleveland crown point Mohegan sun. You want to come see us. BrucePritchard.com is the place to get your tickets. Well, Bruce, if I'm not going, what are you going to do about sex down there? Well, you know, I mean, well, I mean, that's what I'm, I mean, I don't know why you're getting shy. Let's talk about sex. Okay. Let's, you know what, man, let's talk about some good sex. Well, you remember the days when you were always ready to go back when we first started something to wrestle back before you had a hashtag super limp dick well now you can increase never had hashtag super limp dick no well not thanks to our friends over at bluechew.com because you've been able to increase your performance and get it to a more acceptable level i might even go so far as to say that hashtag super hard dick is five stars it's giving you the extra confidence in bed and it can do the same for you at bluechew.com i mean you're feeling right brother love about it if you will this is the way to go. Bluechew.com is the first chewable. It's got the same active ingredients as those big brands you've heard of, Viagra and Cialis. Well, how about the first chewable? Here it is, bluechew.com. That means you can take these dudes anytime, day or night. Since they're chewable, they're going to work twice as fast as a pill. So now you're ready whenever the opportunity arises. Now, to be clear, this isn't for just old dudes like Bruce whose gimmick doesn't work. It's for anybody who wants to enhance their performance in the bedroom and it ships directly to your door in a discreet package. It's prescribed all online, which means no in-person doctor's visits, no awkward visits. This is the way to go. And it's made right here in the good old US of A, the red, white, and blue chew.com. And it ships direct. So it's cheaper than a pharmacy. Don't take our word for it. Uh, see what Bruce saw, how you can push the limit with your dick. Go to visit blue. <laughs> visit blue. Chew. What the hell have we become? All they have to do, Conrad, is go to bluechew.com and they get their first shipment absolutely free by using our promo code Russell. Wait, All you gotta wait, do hang is on, pay five dollars shipping. Hang on, hang on. Are you giving away free dick pills again? Yes. And all you gotta do is use our special promo code wrestle and pay the five dollar shipping just go to b-l-u-e chew dot com promo code wrestle and you can try it for free sean pendergast called me the other day and said what was your promo code again i said wrestle sean and you're going to get your very first shipment absolutely fruit free fruit, fruit at blue chew because it's the better cheaper faster choice by god and it works well yeah your evidence of that i mean sean was just showing us the other day and i'll never forget when he sent us that group text to just bragging about his hashtag super hard dick 
and then he got it for just five dollars i was like that's a lot less than you normally pay for super hard dick isn't it well now he's getting married so obviously it works it did work so you never know what's going to happen unintended consequences whenever you're rocking the blue chew so check it out man bluechew.com use that promo code wrestle and, and be sure to dm uh, pictures of your before and after to bruce do not do that ever <laughs> I mean, listen, it would be like being a WWE diva. All of a sudden there's all these weird dudes just sending either hashtag super hard dick, right? Thank you. No, all those can go to, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. No, no, no. You I, love it. You love it. Well, you, you love to discuss other men's penises. Whoa, whoa. I don't, I don't care about other men's penises. Uh, but Wait, you know, no, no, you do care. Cause we just no. did a whole promo about other men's penises. I care no. about other men's functionality that is going to help with blue chew. I don't want to see it. Okay. I don't want to witness it. I don't want to view it. Can you hear it? Could you just I hear it? I can hear about it. I can hear about it. You tell me, tell, tell me about it when you see me. No, no. I want you to hear the noise. Here you go. Hang on. I'm going to, I'm going to do something right now. Here we go. What are you going to do? You going to chew some up right now? No, no, no. I, I've already done that. Cause I knew I was getting you on the phone and we're doing like a video chat here. So I just wanted you, I mean, listen, you can hear it. In the Holy distance. cow. Put that thing away. How about that? Seriously, man, put it away. So listen, let's talk about, um, St. Valentine's day massacre, because really that's what everybody needs. This Valentine's day is a massacre and they can get there with blue shoe, but I, I digress 14th of February, 1999, 20 years ago at the pyramid in Memphis, Tennessee. I've always been fascinated by the pyramid in Memphis, Tennessee. We've never really talked about that building a ton here. Chat me up about the pyramid in Memphis. It's a piece of shit. Uh, <laughs> you know, you go from the mid South Coliseum to this big, beautiful pyramid on mud Island. That is, I, I don't know what the hell mud Island's supposed to be. I would always ask somebody what exactly is mud Island. I don't fucking know. Um, even Jerry Lawler, but the pyramid was just an ill conceived idea. I think by the folks there in Memphis, to create this new building and it was difficult to get in and out of, and it was just, well, the pyramid. It's the best I can say about that. Well, let's talk about that because now the show that we're reviewing was held in a building that is now a Bass Pro Shop. Yeah, exactly. Is that not incredible? Well, no, it's Memphis, Tennessee, man. I, it, frankly, I think that the Bass Pro Shop fits there better than an arena. If you know what I mean. Well, I do, but something that didn't really fit St. Valentine's day massacre was a name given to a 1929 murder in Chicago. Uh, what's up with that? Naming a pay-per-view after a legit murder. Oh my God, Jesus Christ. You take everything so fucking literally it's, it, it, it's, it's St. Valentine's day and there's going to be a massacre because Mr. McMahon was going to massacre stone cold, Steve Austin. No, I, I get it. Dick shit. I'm just saying. <laughs> it's just a weird, well, it didn't, I, didn't well, there was no relevance to 1929. Okay. Got it. I'm not going to make any comparison, but lots of people are thinking of them now. Let's talk about how hot business is. 
Coming off the Royal Rumble, we recently did a show on that. Mr. McMahon won the Rumble, which guarantees him a shot at the world title at WrestleMania. But the night after the Rumble, he vacates that shot, and the commissioner, Shawn Michaels, gave it to Steve Austin. Austin then challenges Vince to a match at this pay-per-view, and Austin put his shot at the title at WrestleMania on the line, and Vince accepted, which in storyline sort of tickles me because... Why would Vince want to win his own belt when he could just fucking make a new one? But anyway, chat me up here. Austin McMahon, hottest thing you guys have ever done in your entire tenure in the company. True or false? One of the hottest things. Yeah, definitely. What would you put up there with it? Hogan Andre? Yeah. So it's been in the making for about a year where you guys were going to you know, have the big payoff for this feud because it really went down when you guys first took the lead in the Monday night wars, your first victory was in April of 98. So here we are 10 months later and they're gonna face off at a pay-per-view as hot as finally, as, as, as hot as the, the feud was, was it ever considered for a WrestleMania match? No, because for, see, it was hard enough to get Vince to commit to a match. And, and nobody wants to see me. God damn it. I'm 53 years old. Who wants to see an old fart get in the ring? And I, no, but it just took a life on uh, all unto itself. So by the time, you know, you're still wanting to get to rock and Austin at WrestleMania, but along the way, it's like, we got to give them this match at some point, you know, you, you half-ass promise it. You give him a few minutes of it at the Royal Rumble. It, all these teases. I mean, it was a, like you said, it was ten-month build. That's a long. I mean, good God, could you imagine them trying to build something for ten months today? They wouldn't take the time. They wouldn't do it. And here was something that he had built and simmered underneath, and it was time to have it. It was time to have some kind of a match. And Vince felt that he would have enough toys with the cage match. And he could disguise the fact that he's not a worker and that, you know, he's not going to go out there and have some great match with Steve, but they had enough Gaga surrounding it that people would be happy to see Steve kick his ass. Talk to me a little bit about how Vince, you know, got ready for a match like this. So, you know, he's had a couple of matches at this point. He did the quick little schmoz in April of 98, um, on raw with one arm tied behind stone cold's back, blah, blah, blah. He did the, the stuff at Royal rumble, but this has got to be different. Do you remember how he prepared for this? He was in the ring every night with my brother, Tom Pritchard, and they would get in the studio, uh, in the warehouse, in the studio, and they would work out every single night, taking bumps, doing spots, learning Vince, learning as much as he could at 53 years old and, uh, having never you know, been in the business, he'd been in the business his whole life, but it never actually worked before he'd wrestled amateur. He played sports. He did all that shit, but it was a different world learning how to work. So every night, a son of a bitch would go and work out at the gym. And then he would hit, hit the ring every single night. Talk to me about, um, the training schedule, you know, you said every night, what time does he start? What time does he finish? I know that seems like a random question to ask, but we've heard a lot of people say that Vince will just call you in the middle of the night that Vince is a bit of a night owl. I mean, he just doesn't sleep. What did that training schedule look like? 
for Vince and how did he balance it with a day at the office at the time? You act like there's an actual schedule. Uh, well, there probably is a schedule per se, but training begins when he gets there. So, but it's, it could be nine o'clock at night. It could be one o'clock in the morning by the time he gets there, but by God, he was going to get his training in and he was going to work out in the ring no matter what time it was. And he would handle all of his duties. It's funny because Vince, he does, well, he kind of does. I mean, he, he puts himself last in a lot of respects. He puts the business first, but he's going to get that workout in. And if he's got a train in the rink, he's going to get that in. It's, it's a priority, but it's usually last. And so it, it, I'll see you at 10 Tom. And he'll show up at two o'clock in the morning. You sit there and wait. And then the next morning he's back at the office at one time, back at the office, nine, 10 o'clock in the morning. It's just, but that's in the, that's in the office, man. You got to understand when he, he goes, he goes home, goes in his office works. And then as soon as he wakes up in the morning, he goes down to do cardio and starts back in the old days. We had fax machines. So he would get all these facts from the shows the night before and just business stuff. So he would sit down there and that's when he would do his reading. He would do cardio, ride his bike and sit there and read all the, all the shit he had to do that day. His work day started when he woke up. Let's talk about, uh, how that work is paying off. Uh, let's compare February of 98, where things are starting to turn really, really sharply for the company as they march towards WrestleMania 14, they're going to crown stone cold, Steve Austin there, but on the way there, business is picking up in a big way. February of 98, you guys average 94, 64, that's 9,464 fans at your shows. You're up 48 and change percent here to 14,082 as an average attendance. How incredible is that? Well, and, and going back to 98, man, 94, 64, wasn't bad average either. Oh no. It was so strong so, compared to February of 97. So you're saying no shit. February of 95, it's up in 96. It's up in 97. It's up in 98, but now it is way up here in 99. Let's look at the gate. Your average gate was 151 grand in February of 98. Come February of 99, it's more than 302,000, a more than 100% increase. Just unbelievable. You're selling out like nearly 69% of your house shows, and even ratings are through the roof. That's really the major difference between February 98 versus 99. You go from a 3.23 to a 5.72. Ratings are up 77% in a single year, and a lot of that is based on the success of this feud. And it's allowed a lot of other opportunities. One of which we just saw a throwback version of where we recently saw the WWE do halftime heat last weekend during the Super Bowl. And a lot of you older fans may not remember this, but it was first done on January 26th, 1999, where we saw the rock defend the world title against mankind in an empty arena match. And Mick said, I think a year earlier, MTV had had a lot of success doing celebrity deathmatch with claymation figures, one of which was Stone Cold Steve Austin. And they'd done a tremendous rating during the halftime of the Super Bowl. I don't know where the idea came to Mr. McMahon to take to this giant audience and kind of keep it for ourselves. But I do remember being asked about it. And then it was my suggestion that Rock and I do an empty arena match. 
Now I gotta say, Bruce, that's not really that surprising because we all know that Mick Foley is a huge Terry Funk fan. And the most famous empty arena match ever was Terry Funk and Jerry Lawler in Memphis, which I find to be sort of interesting because the show we're covering today also in Memphis. This is the first time in WWF history that you guys did a halftime heat or, and as far as I know, an empty arena match, what did Vince think about this? You know, obviously he loved the idea of halftime heat. I'm sure. Did he pitch that to MTV or did MTV ask for something? Um, I believe it was Vince pitching an idea to anyone that would listen. The. Super Bowl halftime show had become a spectacle, but it also offered opportunity the year before as, as we talked about, they did the, the, the claymation stuff with MTV, the celebrity death match. Well, other networks, they were programming against the Super Bowl as well. So their programming would be no matter what time it is, we're going to have this special edition of this show. So then I thought, well, why the hell can't we do that with, you know, one match, that's it. It goes on. Uh, obviously, we'd have to pre-tape it, which we did, and give people an alternative. We had a hell of an audience that was following us at the time, evidenced by the numbers. So he looked at, let's capitalize on that and get these people that don't want to watch whoever the fuck it was in the Super Bowl to give them an opportunity to flip over and check out some WWF. That was his thinking behind it. And, and I'm not saying Mick didn't come up with that. But I remember Jim Cornette being the first one to pitch it that I heard. And Cornette, of course, in love with Jerry Lawler and Memphis Wrestling. And he had seen that empty arena match and it did very well for him in Memphis. So it was, you know, probably a lot of people, but I thought that the idea was genius and that they pulled it off in a great way. It does tremendously well. Uh, that can't be understated. It did a 6.59 and it got a 9.3 share, making it the single most watched WWF wrestling match from start to finish ever on cable and the highest rated WWF TV show on USA in like 11 years. It's a pretty fun match. Vince did commentary on it. And at one point, mankind rolled down like 40 rows. Um, and then another point rock drank some Jack Daniels and McMahon claimed it wasn't real liquor because the rock doesn't drink, which was kind of fun. And they wind up in the back of the building and mankind drops a forklift with beer, uh, onto the rocks chest. So it's filled with beer kegs and the camera is not showing the obvious lack of impact and mankind jumped on top for the pin. And it was a second title reign. And I know specifically that mankind felt like her fully felt like the match um, was hurt by this spot. He felt like the finish, especially with the point of view perspective of the forklift going down really took away from the match was sort of an interesting decision to shoot it like that. What did you think at the time? And do you remember that being controversial at all when you guys did it? Zero controversy. Uh, it was done just with a lot of cutaways and a lot of different camera angles to try and basically enhance the action. So when you may not have a lot going on, I mean, how boring is it? You're watching a forklift lower. They don't lower that fast. You know, it's not a action packed thing to watch. And I, I came up with a, a phrase. If there's not any action, at least, or not any movement, then give the illusion of movement. 
And that's what they're doing with the multiple camera cuts and the different angles to create something that wasn't there. It, it, any other way you were to shoot that, if you would have just shot it, it would look like shit because it's so slow coming down. But when you do the cutaways and you do, do these different angles, it gives you the feeling that there's a lot more going on. That's now, all. Listen, I know this is weird and, and I wasn't there and what the fuck do I know, but just hear me out. Will you just humor me for a minute? Sure. If we think it's going to look like shit, you know, maybe do something else. Didn't think it was going to look like shit, did it. And it looked like shit. And in coming to it, they had this whole thing built up and felt that the multiple camera angles would help it. So they shot it and it's like, well, that's not going to work that way. So they shot a lot of cutaways and different angles and felt that when they got it back to post, that it would be better. But once you get it back to post, you have what you have. You can't have guys go in and redo it. So hindsight's 2020 day of when you're shooting it and you're looking at it going, okay, we can make this work. And you think you can make it work. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't talk to me about when it was shot, who the agent was, um, you know, all that stuff. Oh God. I don't even remember. I want to, I think I always want to say it was shot in Philadelphia, but I, I, I would don't make a liar. I mean, I don't know. Um, I don't really remember. I was there when it was shot and the guys had pretty much put it together. I believe that, uh, might've been Pat as the agent, but everybody was there and it was mainly Vince and us going through and picking all the different spots of what we wanted to do. But the boys kind of walked the building, looked at what they had and said, okay, this will look cool and decided where their spots are. You also have to anticipate a, an empty arena match, man, that's hard to do because so much of what we do is feeding off of the audience. Well, I mean, but at the same time, I mean, you did years of empty arena matches when you were with TNA, right? Uh, pretty much every night. Right. So, I mean, you get didn't make it, it. It didn't say it was easy. Right. So let's talk about the Super Bowl ad, because this is the same year where you guys had a Super Bowl commercial. And Meltzer would say that, uh, you were getting almost daily mentions in the USA today, uh, including a full page ad a few days after the fact. And a lot of people were reporting that the WWF has, has claimed they were paying well below the standard rate at the time, which was $1.6 million for a 32nd spot. Do you remember what the number was or a ballpark figure? I don't, but I would imagine we probably paid rate. And you're just trying to sort of puff your chest out. We got a deal. Yeah. The stunt man Meltzer would say Mike Jones, who, uh, was shot out of the window of Titan towers and he suffered a sprained knee and actually had done the stunt on a broken back suffered in a different stunt three weeks earlier. And the WWF printed a totally misleading graphic from the February 1st USA today, indicating the commercial was a big hit and the highest rated commercial. It had a heading that looked authentic saying best newcomer and spliced its commercial rating underneath as if it finished the highest among newcomers or something. Actually, it finished 29th out of 52 in the ad meter voting, which is a whole lot higher than it finished where I was watching. I learned a valuable generation gap lesson. I watched it with a large group of people in the early thirties, and I was the only one who even cared when the WWF commercial was on. Nobody cared about Sable after the Frito lay model and Victoria's secrets commercials. 
And most shocking was that more than half the people had never heard of Steve Austin or Vince McMahon, but whatever it was just for the publicity, this was well worth the investment. And then some, it does turn into a bit of a a controversial thing and we'll get there in a minute, but were you pleased with the commercial? Very much. So it was an excellent commercial. It was cleverly written and produced and shot good and Hey, it was in the Super Bowl and it was a big deal and people were talking about it. Meltzer would write that the controversy from this commercial was because two right, right wing religious groups, the American family association and morality and media incorporated complained about the commercial because of the brief spot where a couple was in the embrace that appeared to be making out while at the office. (sighs) The FCC had received close to 60 complaints about the commercial by the latter part of the week. And morality and media put out a press release that claimed the commercial showed quote, a woman was clearly shown on an office desk on her back with her skirt wide open legs spread high in the air toward the viewing audience deep between her legs was a man thrusting his groin wildly in simulated sex. The press release called pro wrestling quote, neither a sport nor a form of entertainment fit for civilized people, which I got to tell you really might be the name of our new podcast. I mean, (laughs) not a form of entertainment fit for a civilized people. When you hear that there's pushback on this, especially now when we know about social media, like, can you imagine if the WWE did something like this and there were 60 negative tweets, who gives a shit, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, pushback, (laughs) there's no fucking pushback. I mean, it was a couple of people going, oh, we don't like the WWF. And okay, well, thanks for getting those initials, right? And thanks for talking about us. Appreciate you. Be sure and watch next year. Do you think that, uh, the scene where they're quote unquote simulating sex was maybe, um, a bad look for the company or did you even give it a second thought at the time? Still don't give it a second thought. Not at all. The February 1st raw was taped on June 26th in Tucson, Arizona. It was a sellout, but a small crowd, just under 7,000, but it still grossed over 175 grand. And these days, everybody's happy. If you hit a hundred, uh, raw opens with Shane doing an interview, explaining that Vince is actually in Victoria, Texas with Patterson and Briscoe hunting for Austin and the cage lowers while Shane was doing an interview and X-Pac is on the cage and he's pounding on Shane until China gave him a low blow and held him for Shane. Later in the show, Bossman beat D'Lo, uh, and then PMS actually cost D'Lo the match. Um, Goldust is here. Uh, he's gonna have uh, a run in on the Blue Meanie, who's spoofing the Nitro Girls as one of the Raw Boys. And then Dr. Francois tells D'Lo that Runnels, uh, you know, Terry Marlena was never actually pregnant. Kudos for everybody having something to do here. This is definitely the Vince Russo era. I even enjoyed Manny spoofing the nicer girls as one of the raw boys, but man, every time we circle back to this whole pregnancy angle with Terry, yeah. Yeah. Then Dr. Francois Petit, who's essentially a glorified uh, chiropractor, great guy and 
could adjust you like there's no tomorrow. Um, but yeah, we'll just leave it there. But the pregnancy angle goes down as one of the worst in the history. You guys did skits throughout this show that are pretty entertaining. They still stand up here. Patterson and Briscoe doing a bunch of comedic stunts and Vince trying to provoke Austin. But of course it doesn't work out and it ends up with, uh, a bunch of Texans, uh, advancing on uh, Patterson and McMahon and Austin in a bar. So pretty fun. Uh, the main event is triple H and Kane. And in this match, Kane gets busted open very badly and wound up with stables in the head. As a result, what happened in that? Well, he got his happy ass busted open, but you know, it's funny. Everybody talks about the, the stuff with the stooges and Vince going to Texas. All that shit was shot in Arizona because Russo and Vince just felt that, you know, as long as it's an old West motif, then people believe it's Texas. And I remember (laughs) saying, why the fuck are you saying Victoria, Texas? Only people in Victoria, Texas know where Victoria, Texas is. Well, isn't that where Austin said he was from? He did, but it's, it's basically just kind of, I don't know. What is it? It's, it's Northwest of, of Houston, but there's not a whole lot there. There's a silver wings ballroom, but not a whole lot like Bandera, Texas. When he lived in Bandera, we actually went there cause they had some really cool bars and nice shit, but it was just the, the attitude, the New York attitude of no one will know the difference. That's eh, it's Arizona. It's Texas. Nobody cares. That eh, used to piss me off, but regardless. Let's talk about Dan Severn. He makes the observer here. Meltzer report he's on the way out. And allegedly he was giving a series of options here. He got suggested he do a shoot fight with uh, Steve Blackman, which maybe doesn't make any sense. If you're Dan Severn, uh, he was given the option, but signing a contract release where they would give him a severance check as a buyout, or he could remain on contract for the next year plus until it expires, but he'd be jobbed out. And Meltzer would say, as of right now, it appears he'll be working through the end of February. And obviously Severn didn't get over quote. It would have been tough. And if it could have worked, there is no guarantee, but if it had been done perfectly from the start and it wasn't, he was pretty well doomed when he was asked where the NWA built on WWF TV again, because the first thing they did was injure him with Owen under the guise of making him a face and setting up a feud. But before they could even do their feud. They turned him on Blackman for no reason. And this confirmed one way or another, which I've been led to believe Severn is booked from the WWF through early February. And he's now in negotiations allegedly for a shoot fight in Holland. So how does, uh, how do you remember things coming to an end? Do you remember pitching the Blackman angle? And do you agree with Dave that the NWA title did him no favors? Well, the NWA title definitely didn't do him any favors, but how, how did you used to describe Dan Severin? Uh, me personally, you personally, I said he had the personality of a UPS truck of a UPS truck. So, so there you go. That's what you're starting with. And Dan is, is a wonderful human being, legit, <laughs> tough guy, but now. just not like, a lot of charisma, but you, you signed him. I mean, you knew that when you signed him, right? No, we really didn't because he came across much differently in that shoot fight world. He came across a lot differently. And you're thinking that you've got Ken Shamrock now and you had just two completely different animals on your hands. 
where I think that Severn saw himself as Shamrock. Um, but again, once you, once you get it, and a lot of people felt that it, me included, by the way, that Dan Severn could come in and that with his shoot fight, his legitimate background, that we would be able to do something with him. Unfortunately, you know, you have to do promos and everything else. And Dan just didn't, you know, Shamrock wasn't a great promo guy either, but he was able to make up for that with the intensity in the ring. He didn't have to say a lot. Right. Unfortunately, Dan didn't say a lot with his intensity in the ring either. He was, he was very methodical, slow, and, and very just methodical. Um, Terrific wrestler, all that other stuff. It just didn't transfer, translate in the professional wrestling world. And we tried. Hey, man, you know, we tried. So it didn't work. Do you remember this option of, hey, we're going to uh, give you a severance check as a buyout, or you can stick around and we'll just job you out? Yeah, no. First of all, nobody talks like that. That's, you know, someone who's never been in the business that says, oh yeah, they told them they're going to job them out. No one would ever say that. That's just complete horseshit. Um, Dan was given an opportunity, said, you know, look, if you're unhappy, Dan was unhappy. Dan knew that he wasn't getting over. Dan felt that, you know, I was like, ah, I'm just kind of in the middle of the card here. They're not doing anything with me. I don't think my personality fits here. He's a smart guy. He understood it. He got it. Um, and out of respect for Dan, I believe it was Jr. went to him and just said, "Hey, uh, let's let's end this amicably, and we'll pay you till a certain time, and you can go on and pursue other interests." Because he was interested in doing other shoot fights outside of the WWF. Felt, you know what, Dan? That's probably going to be more lucrative for you, and that's a world that you still are over in, and we didn't want to take that away from us. So, yeah, go ahead and leave. And let me tell you, if you're looking to go ahead and leave and just make a split amicably and, you know, get a buyout, well, you need to know about Lightstream because if you're sick and tired of paying high interest rates on your credit cards, now is the chance to consolidate multiple credit card payments down into one payment at a lower rate. Doesn't that sound nice? If it does, then Lightstream is a no brainer. You can refinance your credit card balances with a credit card consolidation loan. Lightstream. And even get a rate as low as 6.14% APR with auto pay. The rate is fixed, so it'll never go up. And there are zero fees. You can apply online in minutes and it's so easy. You don't even need to leave your house. You can even get your money as soon as the same day you apply. Uh, you've heard me talk about this for years. I bought a car with Lightstream years ago. I was able to negotiate just like a cash buyer at the dealer. I got a better deal and I never even had to talk to anybody. Couple of clicks over at lightstream.com. And man, I was hooked up. And if you're ready to save even more than I did, well, get a special interest rate discount just for our listeners. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash wrestle. That's L I G H T S T R E A M.com slash wrestle lightstream.com slash wrestle. Now this is subject to credit approval, but the rate will include a half a percent auto pay discount. Once again, we're talking a half a percent auto pay discount just because you went to lightstream.com slash wrestle terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. I get all the information you need by visiting our boys over at lightstream.com slash wrestle for more information. That's lightstream.com slash wrestle. 
And what's interesting about this whole Dan Severin talk to me is around the same time, you guys are meeting with tank Abbott in Los Angeles and Mark Kerr in Phoenix. Whenever you guys are on the road, nothing is signed and obviously nothing really comes of that. And I was fascinated with Mark Kerr because of the documentary, the smashing machine. Did you ever see the documentary and what did you guys think of Mark Kerr? I was a big fan of Mark Kerr. I was a big fan of Mark Kerr, Mark Coleman, um, Don Fry, Tank Abbott. And, you know, during the, the time that we were there in Tucson, it was actually having conversations with Don Fry during that time to come in and work with us. And, and Don, again, was one of those guys, had personality. Tank had an over-the-top personality. Uh, Current Coleman, eh, not so much, but they were tough guys, and they had an understanding of the wrestling business. So we were we were meeting with people constantly tank came in and rolled around with Tom a little bit, did not have an aptitude for the business. And that was just a, a meeting and a courtesy come on in the ring and let's see what you've got. Um, more than anything, as far as tank Abbott goes, but Mark Kerr, there was interest in, and there was definitely interest in Don Fry and Coleman was one of those guys that was always kind of mentioned here and mentioned there, but nothing ever serious came of it. Do you think, um, Vince would have done anything differently with tank Abbott? Had he gotten him? Yeah. Yeah. Not use him. Um, tank was, you know, tank would brag about, Oh yeah, I used to wrestle. I could do stuff. And, and he just had no clue. Very clumsy tank made, made his whole thing on knocking people out on just going out there, not giving a shit and knocking people out. He had a reputation as a barroom brawler came into the UFC. And in my opinion, got lucky in every win that he had, he got lucky, but he was a loud mouth, cut great promos. And unfortunately in, in, in our world, that bell would have had to ring and he couldn't just go out there and just knock people out. He had to be able to work and he had to take bumps. He had to learn how to work a little bit and there just wasn't a whole lot of work ethic there either. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Butterbean. He's in the news as well. The Philadelphia daily news would report that he had a two fight deal with the WWF at $50,000 per fight. And they even claim in the newspaper that he'll never be pinned in either match. And uh, they also report that he had discussions with the WWF about doing a Bart gun brawl for all match, but as of yet, of course it hadn't happened, but he was going to take off from boxing after mid February and start getting ready for whatever it is he's going to do with the WWF. And of course we know he is going to wind up taking on Bart gun and it's going to happen at WrestleMania, uh, in March, chat me up here. Um, why didn't it go well the first time? And what was better about this offer? The second go around with Butterbean? Well, there was no, I mean, there was no first and second offer. It was one offer that we held off until WrestleMania looking for, okay, what's going to be the more eyeballs? Where should we do this? And the idea was let's do it at WrestleMania. Give Bart as much time as you possibly could to train for the thing. Bart took it seriously and Bart really trained his ass off, uh, with boxing trainers and he got in the gym and he, he felt that he had a chance and he wanted to go out and, and fight Butterbean. 
So to make it the best, to give Bart every opportunity, it's like, how long do you need? So he wanted that extra time to train and work out. Don't know how much good it did him, but, uh, you know, it, it just was a different, you know, it's a different world. It's, it's one thing to be a tough guy and, and do what Bart did. It's another thing to be a boxer and get in the ring and actually box with a skilled boxer. It's just a completely different world. Another thing I want to mention here is, uh, Howard Stern took to the air to rip on the WWF for the Mark Henry, Sammy skit. And he says it's ridiculous and shouldn't have been allowed on TV when young children are going to watch. He's very critical of the WWF here, which in hindsight seems kind of interesting because he's on morning drive radio in most markets talking about all kinds of crazy stuff. But Russo had Howard Stern as a hero at the time. Does Vince ever mention, or does it ever come up that Howard was critical of the company? Because you guys had an on again, off again relationship with his show over the years. Yeah, it was pretty hypocritical. I think on Howard's part, just because of the subject matter of his show for so many years on free radio. And as it was pointed out to me so many times that I would say that USA cable what's on free cable. Yes. You have to pay for cable and I get it guys. Um, but Howard was on free radio. Just turn your radio on and you could listen to some girl deep throat to kielbasa. Um, but Russo loved everything that Howard Stern did and thought he was, uh, the end all be all, but I don't look, they were talking about us. Thank you. I do want to mention the, uh, the raw at the sky dome in Toronto, uh, because the February 8th raw, uh, which actually aired on the 13th, uh, it's at the sky dome, which is a pretty big deal because at this point it's drawing the largest crowd in the history of the Monday night wars. There's 41,432 fans in the building. 38,000 and change were, uh, paying $737,000 us, which is just insanity for a raw. It was both the third largest crowd and third largest gate for pro wrestling ever in Canada, only behind, um, the Hulk Hogan, Paul Orndorff match, which we've talked about a lot, uh, from way back in the day. I think that was like 85. And then the, uh, WrestleMania six match with Hogan warrior that drew 64,287 fans really, really a, a huge show. And it's just a raw who pitched the idea of a sky dome raw Carl DeMarco, Carl DeMarco, the president of Canada <laughs> bison head. Um, look, business was great everywhere. And it was especially great in Canada, the sky dome. What, uh, so we're 1999. So this is the year where a lot of the domes, okay. Uh, the Astrodome, the sky dome, I believe St. Louis, uh, definitely the Georgia dome, but some of these big domes, they were really hurting for revenue because they were built for football and or baseball. When it's not football or baseball season, they would sit empty for the most part. So there was a a guy, actually the first place that ever did it was the Astrodome in Houston where they all of a sudden decided they could curtain off the domes and they could make any size arena they want. They could make it a 10,000 seat intimate 
arena with curtains and drapes and they would all absorb the sound and and you felt like you were in a 10,000 seat arena that can make it 20,000, 30,000. They could accommodate whatever size you wanted. So this became now for the domes, all of a sudden their business opened up to people that would uh, use smaller venues, the, the 10, 20,000 seat arenas. Skydome was one of the first that came in. They wanted, instead of running whatever the arena was there um, in Toronto, Maple Leaf Gardens, it was run the Skydome. We'll, however many tickets you sell, that's how big this arena is going to be. So they just would move the curtain in more, and it was intimate for the people that were there. And it was the same thing with Sky Dome. We, we did it. Uh, I don't think we ever did in the Astrodome. We did it in the Alamo Dome and other domes. But that was one of the first, and it, and it worked, and we proved successful. WCW did it with uh, the Georgia Dome. We did it at the Georgia Dome, and it was something that worked well. Let's talk about uh, this Raw here, because the show opens up with Jason Sensation. It's a name we haven't talked about before, certainly in a long time, doing a bunch of imitations, including China. And they do a 20 minute long banter, which started with Austin saying he's going to kill Vince and mankind saying he's going to kill the rock. And then the corporation coming out and, uh, Vince and rock retort and Vince announces that he's going to referee the mankind Austin match later in the show. Jason sensation though, a name that popped up in the news sometime last year again. Chat me up about Jason's sensation. Jason was one of those kids that got taped at a autograph signing doing a Owen Hart imitation. I believe it was he did Owen Hart and Stone Cold Steve Austin. They got him on tape. Vince heard it. Get me that kid. And Carl DeMarco went back, found him, because, oh, yeah, that's whatever his name is, and uh, found him and brought him in. But he uh, had a nice little run there for a while doing his imitations. His Owen Hart was, you close your eyes, and it was Owen Hart. His imitations were second to none. He really did a great job, and he had got a little fame out of it for a while. Let's talk a little bit about... Um... The first match here in the show is Mark Henry with a new valet named Ivory beating Jeff Jarrett. Boy, how weird is it that we're covering a raw from 20 years ago that Jeff Jarrett's on and the son of a bitch was on raw this week. Spend my days working hard hey, on the hey, go. Hey, stop that. Road dog said we had nothing to do with that shit, that shit. So let's just let it go. We got, I still sing it better. Well, we got a bunch of tweets saying that it was all our fault and road dog corrected that and said that, no, come on guys. So let's just leave it alone. That's Jeff's song. Now we didn't have anything to do with that. You know, my baby's got me wrapped around her. You know that I would walk through hell and back to be with her. Cause I can't wait to be alone with my baby tonight. Speaking of at least, your, at least I know the words. Well, that's true. Uh, speaking of, uh, your baby ivory here is making her debut. And of course she's going to have a heck of a career, go on to be a hall of famer. Uh, but she's been in the wrestling business forever. I think her name back in the glow days was like Tina Ferrari. Were you surprised at the longevity she had in the company? Because it does feel like 
she would win a game of which one of these is not like the other at the time. <laughs> oh, I'll tell you a funny story. There was, and uh, I'm not, I can't, I just can't think of her name. And I tried to look it up beforehand and it, it, but please everyone make no mistake about it in no way, shape or form. Was it ivory? But there was a glow girl that had a sugar daddy who got a meeting with Vince McMahon. And this guy was wanting to pay for his girlfriend, this former glow girl, to be the WWF champion. And he wanted to pay us to have her work with whoever the champion was at the time and win and be the champion so that she could say that she was the WWF women's champion. And Vince is kind of looking at him and he's looking at me and he's looking at this guy and this girl. He's like, that's not how we do business. Hey, he says, well, there's a first, you know, first time for everything. And I'm, uh, this is this is an opportunity for you. She's going to be one of the most widely known names, and she'll be one of the biggest stars you ever had. And Vince listens, thanked him very much, wrapped the meeting up rather quickly, and they left. And he says, let me know. But this guy was the stereotypical. He was a large guy, bald head actually had a cigar in his suit pocket on the outside pocket. Um, just stereotypical. If you were to go back, he was kind of like daddy Warbucks. That was what, what I looked at him as, but this guy came in trying to buy the women's championship for this glow girl. So when we had talked about ivory coming in and, and she had worked as Tina Ferrari, in glow, Vince like, no, no way. No, God, Bruce, remember we met with them? I said, Vince, I think this is a different girl. And sure enough, it was Lisa. And I said, no, this one actually has experience. She's <laughs> she did work at Glow, but she also did other things. She's she's got some talent. But his first impression when he heard Glow was that that meeting that we had with this. Daddy Warbucks guy and some woman from Glow that the guy wanted to pay for her to be the champion. That's the weirdest thing you've maybe ever said on the show. It was, you should have been there. And Vince is trying to figure out, and we were at 1055 Summer Street, uh, which was the old office in Stanford, Connecticut. Vince is trying to figure out how this guy even got the meeting. Why was Vince meeting with this guy? And the girl was there and everything, beautiful girl. But all she had ever done was glow, and she didn't really have much experience working. Yeah. And Vince is wondering, the, the whole thing, our takeaway from that meeting was, how did that son of a bitch get in the door? How did he get here? And I, I to this day, we don't know. That's amazing to me. Uh, later in the show, Austin and Mankind get in the ring and Mankind attacks Vince. So the corporation does a run in to help him. And of course our heroes, Austin and Mankind clean house together. So the main event never officially took place. Vince is outsmarted and Vince orders a gauntlet match with Austin against the corporation later in the show. 
Uh, Austin would beat Shamrock by DQ when uh, he hit the stunner and Test interfered. Then he beat Test by DQ when he hit the stunner and Kane interfered. Then he beat Kane by DQ when he hit the stunner and China interfered. And then he beat China by DQ when he hit the stunner and Bossman interfered. And Bossman was DQ'd for laying out Austin with the nightstick. So, uh, how about that? For some interesting booking. It's a fun little angle, fun little storyline. It allows Vince McMahon to come in and pin Austin and the whole corporation then attacks Austin until first mankind. And then the undertaker does a run in undertaker chokeslams nearly everybody and cleans them out. Uh, fun way to sort of, uh, build to Austin McMahon, just having Austin take on every one of the corporation members one at a time. Yeah, it, it, you know, it was a way to do it without getting to Vince. So, uh, you know, kudos, hats off to him because it, it got you interested and it kept it kept dangling that carrot. What's Austin going to do to Vince? What's Austin going to do to Vince? And you end with that last scene, Vince and Austin's face, chewing a mass, chewing his ass out while Austin's held there in the corner. Uh, that's probably still used today on every damn damn thing with Austin events, but it was that classic shot and people wanted Steve to get his hands on Vince so bad. Oh, it's good shit. Yeah. That moment in, in this where he's down in his face, yelling at him in the corner. I mean, you still see that today. So it was a pretty iconic moment and it was on the way to this pay-per-view. Let's talk about behind the scenes. Meltzer would write that road dog was expected to check into rehab this week. And that looks like he'll be likely to be out through WrestleMania. Um, he would say it's probably no secret to anyone paying close attention to the flip side of all this is the current media attention that the drug issue is going to become a big thing before the year is out. If not before the summer, WWF did some drug testing over the past week and road dog went to management asking for help with his problems. His match with Al Snow is off St. Valentine's Day's pay-per-view, and the plan is to shoot some sort of angle on the live heat show to give Snow a new opponent. Road Dog suffered a scare in MSG when the ring ropes were loose, and he took an unplanned bump over the top, landing on his head in a six-man with DX versus Undertaker and the Acolytes. His arm on the right side went totally numb, and Taker brought him in the ring and immediately pinned him. And they held up the show for 15 minutes, put him in a cervical collar, rushed him to the hospital. And he was out of the hospital later that evening and went to Toronto to TV, but was kept off of the actual wrestling part of the show because of the injury. So a lot going on here in road dogs life. And it is sort of interesting that, you know, we usually hear about somebody who goes to rehab in wrestling because the company says, Hey, you got to go. And in this case, it's reported that road dog asked to go. He did. And he recognized that he was having a problem and wanted to get help. You know, people forget road dogs, a veteran. He served in desert storm. He was a Marine badass, and not making excuses in any way, shape or form. You know, he had his issues. However, in this particular case, yeah, road dog realized he had issues, raised his hand and said, help me. Um, <laughs> I'm out of control and I really need some help. So hats off to him for having the self-awareness to do that. And, you know, there are so many, uh, good stories out of rehab. You know, you got both good and bad. Sometimes guys relapse, but I look at road dog today 
and he's happy, healthy, drug-free, and having a great life, and um, good the, for him. One of the real success stories in wrestling. Yes, without a doubt. All right, now let's switch gears, and let's talk about Sable. We've talked about this before, but I do want to bring it up again because it happened around this same time. Sable makes an appearance with China on TSN. Deborah's there too, actually. And somewhere in there, they ask China why she isn't the women's champion. And she says she's not interested and had never challenged for it. But if she did, she would beat Sable in two seconds. And Sable asks, Hey, we've never wrestled. How could you say that? China says, well, I'm twice as big and twice as strong. And Sable says, well, what do you put in your body to make you twice as big and twice as strong? And of course, plastic surgery comes up, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of the rumor and innuendo at the time is that the boys actually side with China on this saying that, um, it was taboo to bring up any sort of drug issue or even to insinuate it. And it's around this same time that Marrow and Sable ask for their release, but they're not granted it because they know there's going to be a ton of press when Sable's playboy issue comes out. What do you remember about this TSN incident with China and what the, the blowback was? Well, I remember it. And I, from my vantage point, both of them were wrong because they didn't know how to handle the situation and went into a place that there's no way to get out of it. As soon as you start throwing that bullshit around, you're wide open. Those people, you know, those of us living glass houses don't throw stones. And it just was a, it was a bad, bad situation for both. I think both of them were wrong. So it just made a bad situation worse. And the guys, you know, everybody liked China and at the time, and it wasn't that people didn't like Sable. I, I think that it was, yeah, maybe they didn't, but, but it was more from the, the relationship with Mark and sometimes that protectiveness that Mark had over Sable at the time. And the, I don't know, it just seemed like a, a favoritism deal with, with Sable, but fuck, she was making money for the company. She was over the young boys absolutely adored her. So again, it, it's, um, children being children. Leave it that way. Meltzer also writes, this is directly from the observer. Rock has been wearing a shirt because he just had surgery on his chest, apparently to remove the gynomastia parentheses or bitch tit syndrome, as it's known in slang in parentheses. You know, we get lots of questions about this all the time on Twitter. Why did the rock wrestle in that Adidas, you know, track suit all the time? It's because of this surgery. Yeah. Uh, and it's, I, I mean, it's in the observer. Let's talk about it. What do you remember about this surgery, how it came about, what the solution was, what Vince thought about it, et cetera, et cetera. Because we've always heard that Vince was a body guy, blah, blah, blah. And now your champion, is it going to show his body? Well, it's temporary and it was no big deal. It was an elective surgery that he was in and out and working the next night. It, again, I think that people make a much bigger deal out of it than it actually was. And he, he wore the shirt to hide it and protect it. And that's all there was to it. But it, again, <laughs> I just think that, that people make a, a bigger deal out of it. He went and didn't miss a day of work and <laughs> had elective surgery. 
to make his body look better. So there's no problem with that. What's a big deal. How about this for a fun little story directly from the observer rock shamrock, the Hardy boys, Gene LaBelle and Ernie Ladd all appeared on the February 7th, that 70 show on Fox, the show blows and shamrock basically played a wrestler similar to himself, but by the, with a Beatles like wig on rock played the character of Rocky Johnson with the big Afro as a 70 star. There were WWF banners everywhere, despite the fact that the company was called the WWF in the seventies. And here's the fun part. Rock had a speaking role and did very well for himself playing something totally different than his wrestling character. When the father and son, who were the stars of the show asked him for his autograph, he said that he had a son and that his son would one day grow up to be the most electrifying performer in sports entertainment, which was a pretty cute line. If you understood it, which probably 99% of the audience didn't. LaBelle played the ref while the Hardy boys played jobbers and lad played Johnson's manager. Is this his first foray in acting right here? Huh? I, I think he had already done the, not the Scorpion King, but done the first part of that with the mummy movie where he had done the Scorpion King. And this was right in that time frame, right along that same time frame. But, uh, it was, I loved the line. I thought it was clever as, as hell talking about his son going to grow up and all that shit. And it got rock out there. Um, that 70s show was a huge show. For you, Fox, you might be right, but the mummy returns came out in 2001. So I brought yeah, this so up. he had already shot it. So it was like two years before that. Two years that, before that he that? shot it. I'm saying, okay, well that would have been may of 99. This is February. Even if he shot it two years ahead of time. Uh, okay. Well, maybe then I'm fucking a- wrong. I don't fucking know. I just, they were, he was doing a lot of shit. He was doing shit with the scorpion King. He was doing shit with the mummy and he was doing a lot of different stuff. So he was out there. I don't know to the day that he shot the mummy. Why are you mad? Well, cause you make it like, well, that was May, 1999. The movie came out two years. That was, I don't fucking know. I don't know the date that he shot it. Well, that's was early on. He was doing a lot of different shit. You know, sometimes you just like to Bischoff and you say, no, that's not right. When you don't know that it's not right. You just want to fucking argue. I don't want to fucking argue. You're the one arguing. I'm not arguing. Yeah, you are. How am I arguing? No, well, no, that would make this date that day. I, I don't give a fuck. Why are you so mad, bro? I'm not mad. Here's what I'm asking. I guess. Doesn't it make sense? Hear me out. Doesn't it make sense that maybe the rock had this gynomastia surgery before he filmed the mummy returns? I have no idea. Okay. Well, I'm right. That's okay. Okay. Great. Hip, hip, hooray. Conrad's right. Everybody. Boy, you need to take your fucking pills. Um, Mero has his elbow scoped around this same time. And, and apparently when he's back from that, you guys asked him to basically copy his old Johnny B bad character. And he turned the idea down. I don't even believe that. Talk me through this. Well, first of all, he couldn't copy his Johnny B bad idea because that was WCW owned property. Vince was hung up on the guy Vince fell in love with was Johnny B bad. He know who the hell Mark Merrill was. And he saw this guy with all this charisma and just, just fire and attitude. And then we got Mark Merrill. So Vince wanted to try and create a character that could bring out the same qualities that Johnny B bad had. 
But there, no, he didn't want to recreate Johnny B. Bad. He just was like, you know, where's that guy? Where's the charisma? Let's let's find something that's going to make you make Mark Marrow more than what we're getting right now. Uh, if it's playing a part, then let's come up with what part it is. Let's come up with what that character is where we can see more of that charisma and, and more of that character. But he wasn't, he wanted to be Mark Merrill. Marco. Merrill. Hey, uh, yeah. did you know that the rocks first thing he did on TV was that 70 show? It was definitely not mummy returns. Yeah. That's fucking awesome. Uh, this is a new bit on the show now. I love it. So there's an AP story that comes out in newspapers across the country. Uh, here's the headline. Olympian insists he hasn't sold his soul to the WWF. Of course, they're talking about Kurt Angle coming in and they're suggesting that he comes in uh, after WrestleMania, but not immediately after. And they're talking about what his options were and how he wound up here in the WWF. But what I found interesting in my research is he sort of hints that he may have another ex amateur wrestler as his tag team partner. And Meltzer would say who would almost have to be Williams talking about Dr. Death. And he suggests that maybe his wife might be written into the storyline. And I find that interesting because at the time, Kurt Angle's wife is Karen Angle, who we now know is Karen Jarrett. Chat me up. Was it ever discussed before he debuted that maybe his wife should be a part of the business? We never saw Karen in an, in an on-roll managerial aspect of his WWF run. We did see her later on TV, but not here in the WWF. Was it ever discussed early on? No, it wasn't. And you know, that, that comes from Meltzer getting bits and pieces of information and stuff because Karen was at the training one day. So Karen was at the training one day and I believe Dory Funk or Marty Funk made a comment about, Oh my God, what a beautiful ballet she would make. Those little things then get out, and he he hears that and goes, "Oh, they're training Karen Jarrett to be to manage Kurt." That's what this means. Completely, no truth to that. No, nothing. And that's where the rumor and innuendo on how this guy actually conducts his business is through rumor and innuendo. No truth to that. And Kurt doing interviews even then would just say shit to say shit. There was no plan of bringing Kurt Angle in with any other amateur wrestler. At all. It's Kurt Angle. Why the fuck do you want to saddle him with somebody else? And and plus he wasn't <laughs> we weren't even ready at the time. So it was it was not even an issue. Sort of like how The Rock wasn't ready for the movie yet until he did some. No, TV. he wasn't. <laughs> no. Oh my gosh. Let's talk about St. Valentine's day massacre while we're really here. Sold out weeks in advance, broke all the Memphis wrestling records as expected. Take that Jerry Lawler, 19,028 fans packing the pyramid now Bass pro shop, uh, 17,977 of those fans paid 316 grand at the gate, another 143,000 in merchandise. And Meltzer would say the show itself was horrible for most of the first three hours. This was a show where you couldn't attribute the lack of heat for most of the matches to the fact that the show was so long because there was little excitement in them. And Meltzer's basically saying that now there's been a bit of a paradigm shift 
and the show is less about matches and more about skits and gimmicks. I don't know. It's, um, it's an interesting take. He continues. It's so successful, but on the big show, it exposes the products when the matches that these skits and gimmicks set up have little crowd interest. Rock and mankind had another good title match, but the crowd hated the finish. It was a show that on paper didn't look good. While McMahon's performance was a success, that was the lone saving grace because rock and mankind on paper, the one match show wasn't good enough to carry an otherwise weak event by itself. Let's talk a little bit about, um, the card and, and we'll run through all the matches, but before we do, I want to make mention of the fact that Jr. is not here and Meltzer says it really stands out. And Jerry Lawler, who had signs all over the building about his potentially running for mayor was badly hoarse and he couldn't carry the broadcast. Meltzer would continue. Michael Gold was clearly overworked and exhausted as he was making the kind of mental errors as far as screwing up names uh, that one would make under those circumstances to make matters worse. It was clear. He's out of his league calling matches as opposed to doing raw where the object is to tell is to tell stories. It was what a move city. Even for moves like boss man's finisher or Venus's finisher. And it appeared someone was feeding him things to say because he'd often repeat three to five seconds late as if he was being fed, as opposed to coming off as natural. So pretty critical of Michael Cole here. You watched the show this week for the first time in a long time. It was hurt by Jr. not being there. Wasn't it? No, I don't think so. Uh, again, it's, I don't think the, the announcer is really going to mean that much. But I didn't think it was that bad. I really didn't. And to Michael Cole saying, what a move on boss man's finish. He said, what a move. And then called boss man's finish. So uh, what the hell do you want? And it also is a point where now you have Jim Ross, who is on headset producing the play-by-play guy and the color guy. So for Jim, Jim's handicapped because Jim is trying to call the action. So if he's trying to call the action and help Michael Cole call the action, JR's calling it in real time and then giving it to Michael in real time, which is going to give you a delay. And Michael can't be himself, can't react naturally because he's got somebody in his ear yelling at him, telling him what to say. So it's a catch-22. You got your guy, JR, who's producing him, but then you got a guy out there who's trying to, to do JR's call that he's not going to do it justice because he's a different kind of play-by-play guy. It's just different. And it was during a time that Michael was still getting through that with the live stuff and having people in his ear that way, constantly pr- uh, producing him. So I wouldn't wish that on anybody. And for the play-by-play guys and the color guys that can sit there and go through somebody in their ear, yelling at him constantly for two or three hours more power to you. Just not for me. Sunday night heat is of course the, uh, the way you guys would sell that last minute pay-per-view and it opens with McMahon coming out saying he has big plans for Austin, which we're going to talk about Kevin Kelly and Shane McMahon are doing the commentary. what do you think of uh, Kevin Kelly and Shane McMahon as a combo? Well, I always like Kevin Kelly. I think Kevin is a good play by play guy. I just don't think that commentary was Shane's forte. I don't think that he was good at it. And he was again, trying so hard to listen to what everybody's feeding him that 
it's, it doesn't come across naturally. It, when Shane just gets out there and talks, like today, when you when you see him on SmackDown, that's the Shane I know. And he's natural and he's at ease and he just talks. And he speaks from the heart versus he was trying to play a character and had two dozen people in his ear telling him what he should and shouldn't do. And color commentary wasn't his forte. But it was a way to expose Shane and get him out there. What do you think of the skit they did with Dominic Danucci, who's Mick Foley's original trainer? <laughs> he came to the show with Backlund and Sheik, and Danucci's playing like uh, he's the Mick to Rocky Balboa. And of course, in this instance, mankind is Rocky Balboa. Uh, Sheik's here to uh, build up a spot where he's twirling uh, pylons, but mankind thinks maybe they should be weapons. Backlund's running stairs like a maniac. The Rock of course, attacks mankind's knee in the process. What'd you think of the involvement of Dominic Danucci? Nice little nod for Foley to get his, uh, his old trainer a payday here, huh? I thought it was fucking great because it gave you that nostalgia feel. And it was, it was that lighthearted good moment that turned into a serious moment that was then stolen at the very end of it. If you go back and listen to Sheik, who you're, you're on mankind and mankind's down and he's on the floor and he's selling from rock nailing him with you know, the, the gimmick shit. And as rock walks off and you see mankind down selling and then you hear, what, what you do that for the rock? And why you come do that for? <laughs> I'm just dying because you can't do it again. And Sheik's going to get Sheik shit in. Oh, what the, they came. They are listening to me. Baba. Maybe I'll bend you over, fuck your ass, Ooh. humble you, mm. bitch. Uh, Viscera gets a win over Test by DQ in two minutes and 20 seconds when Bossman makes the save for Test. And Meltzer's pretty critical here. He says, let me get this straight. They made Leon White a jobber because he couldn't get his weight down and it was hurting his stamina. Then they go out and sign Nelson Frazier, Paul White, and Brian Heffron. This is sort of hard to argue. Talk to me about the double standard there and hiring, you know, our buddy blue Manny and, and viscera when you okay, just, well, first of all, you can't put Paul white in that group. And Paul white was in great shape at the time. Also, Nelson Frazier and Brian Heffron were both gimmicks in a fraction of the cost of Leon and didn't have a quarter of the attitude that Leon had. All right, there you go. Next up, Billy Gunn goes to a no contest with your favorite wrestler and mine, Tiger Ali Singh. In 40 seconds, Meltzer would write, actually, there was no match, thankfully. They did a ref bump right away and had Val Venus and Ken Shamrock run in, and it wound up with a three-way. And the show ended with McMahon calling out Austin. Shawn Michaels instead showed up. Finally, Austin came up, but they were running long, and whatever the point was is supposed to be anyone's guess because the show went on the air in mid-interview. How the fuck does that happen? Shit happens sometimes. Just gotta go. Why was Austin late? What happened that you remember? Did, uh, did Vince flip out? He's involved and this is not going exactly as planned. Sometimes it just gets away from them and they're, they're going on and we're waiting for a certain queue and they're not getting to the queue and they keep going. So they think they hit the queue when they didn't. And, you know, shit fucks up, but it didn't fuck up the pay-per-view. Thank God. And we got into the, 
to the open okay, but the and the open I thought was absolutely just fucking great. The black and white with the old timey, you know, Valentine music and all that shit. And it was it was just such a such a cool feel. And uh really liked it. I should mention the uh, dark match a lot of people locally said it was the best match on the card just because people are so familiar with them. It's Brian Christopher and Scott Taylor getting a win over Matt and Jeff Hardy. Um, they're all over too much here as the hometown heroes and babyface. Um, so good for those guys. Let's get to the pay-per-view though. Gold dust beats blue dust in the first match, three minutes and seven seconds. Melswood Wright crowd died. Once the match started the highlight, if a word could be used for this match was Goldust lifting up blue dust shorts and spanking his flabby, butt. Goldust got the pin with the worst curtain call in history and gave him shattered dreams after the match comedy. That wasn't funny and wrestling. That wasn't wrestling so bad that even keeping it short, couldn't prevent it from being an embarrassment. Negative one star. Says the guy with no sense of humor. Look, it was an entertaining match. It was kept short. It was to go out and get people involved. I didn't think that they ever lost the audience. Thought the audience was in it for what it was. It was a gimmick match. It was just a ha-ha. Go out and get the crowd up. Do your job. Get the fuck out. What did you think of Blue and it Dust? Did that. I thought, <laughs> actually thought it was great. I enjoyed it. Uh, but again, man, I'm a fan of Meanie and I'm a fan of gold dust. And they went out and they, they played their roles perfectly. Not every match is going to be Takayashi Okazua versus Shin Blabasukiyaki and fucking go 45 minutes with 10 million spots that nobody sells. And then go, God is fucking great. It's, it's a fucking Gaga match with guys going out and doing their gimmicks and let people up for a sec and, entertain them. And if you don't want to be entertained, don't watch the pay-per-view. Wow. Okie doke. Uh, next up, we got Bob Holly winning the vacant hardcore title over Al snow in 10 minutes and two seconds. The title was announced as vacant due to road dogs, quote unquote injury that aired as a cover story for his rehab. They left the ring, started brawling fire extinguisher spots, lots of loud sounding objects, broom handles. Uh, they're hitting each other with rubberized garbage cans and paper pop crates. This is all directly from the observer. They ended up down at the adjacent Mississippi river bank and both ended up taking a spill into the cold water. Finally, Holly wrapped snow and steel mesh fence with Al snow all tied up. So to speak, he was pinned when Holly came to the building to be awarded. The crowd popped pretty big for him. So they must've liked it, even though it seemed to drag on way too long. The guys worked hard, but it was really a cartoonish brawl. One star. What'd you think? Uh, I was highly entertained and the guys busted their ass. They worked hard. My favorite, <laughs> my favorite moment was when Al snow wrapped the barbed wire around Bob Holly and says, have you met my girlfriend Barbie wire? Um, I just popped for the little shit. Those guys going into the river there because it was freezing cold. And then on top of that, for the time that it took for Bob Holly to get from outside back to the arena so that he could get the win. And the whole time Al snow is outside still wrapped up in the chain link fence. And I, 
I just chuckled a little shit like that. But the match itself, I thought they told a hell of a good story and it was entertaining. It was good stuff. Next up, we've got a uh, big boss man taking on Midian six minutes and 20 seconds. Boss man gets the win. Meltzer says the crowd's dead. Nobody, uh, is even acknowledging Midian boss man's booed. Uh, and he points out that Lawler was trying to put over how everyone was now taking to the ministry, but maybe not Midian here. Uh, he gave it negative one star. And of course, after the match, the entire ministry without the undertaker and Paul bear attack boss man and beat him down. And then viscera gets his revenge for earlier splashing boss man three times here to carry him to the back. Like he's going to be human sacrifice or maybe viscera's lunch. what do you think? Negative one star. I thought it was about six minutes and 15 seconds too long. Yeah. This is just not good matchmaking. It wasn't, it was, it was slow and plotting. I mean, as far as the guy, the guys went out, worked hard. Nobody gave a shit. I mean, like I, I think they gave less than two shits. Um, terrible. Just, it was, I don't know what else to say. It was painful to watch. That's how, I mean, and again, that's why I remembered so much that, when boss man did the finish, I was like, thank God. I remember Michael Cole calling the finish by its name. That's how much I remember about that match. It was like, Oh, get over, just go home, be done with this. And it never, it, it felt like a lot longer. Yeah. It's about six minutes, 15 seconds too long. Owen Hart and Jeff Jarrett next retain the tag titles over D'Lo and Mark Henry, nine minutes and 34 seconds. Mark's working with a bad knee here. So he's limited. Uh, Meltzer says actually on paper, this should have been, uh, this should have made the match better since Stilo has to work like 90% of it, but for whatever reason, it just didn't click. You can always tell who Meltzer likes or doesn't like too. He wrote Jarrett wasn't even the slightest bit over in Memphis where he spent years as a main eventer, no heat. And considering three of the four guys are solid workers. It never gained momentum. Fans didn't care about the wrestling because the focus was on ivory and Deborah. Although they did a tease on heat of turning this into a six person match with the women wrestling each other, the crowd died when the suggestion was made. Unfortunately, neither woman can talk ivory who is 36, even though she worked a decade ago, it was barely pro wrestling. He's talking about glow what she did. And she seemed out of place in a ring here. Finish saw the women argue and Hart hit Henry in the knee, breaking the guitar and Jared got the submission with the figure four, presumably to set up an injury angle and give Henry a few weeks off. The women went out and afterwards with ivory ripping the back of Deborah's blazer one star. Uh, I don't know why this was a miss. Owen Hart's tremendous. A lot of people enjoyed D'Lo and Jeff Jarrett in the ring. I know Mark Henry's hurt, but. An Owen Hart match with one star, something was definitely not clicking. Well, that's his opinion. I thought that the match was solid. It was what it was. I, I thought the finish sucked for me. It was just the guitar shot. It, you could see it coming a mile away. Didn't like the finish, but again, watching the match, you sit there and you watch Owen do his stuff and say what you want to about Jeff Jarrett. He could work. And the stuff looked believable, but it wasn't enough to, for me to save that finish. And to me, the finish was weak. Val Venus winds up winning the intercontinental championship from Ken Shamrock 
with Millie Gunn as the ref in 15 minutes and 52 seconds and only gets a star and a quarter here. Talk to me about why the decision was made to take the belt off of Ken Shamrock and put it on Val Venus. Meltzer would say, even with all the angles building this one up, the crowd didn't seem to care. And Shamrock was sick all week leading to the point that he actually stayed sick in Toronto after all, and couldn't leave the hotel at all, all week. So he's in a bad way here and the match is not awesome as a result. And after the match gun attacks Val for no apparent reason. Talk me through this. Well, as far as the, the idea was to put the championship on Val to give Val a little bit more credibility and give him a little something more to talk about. The match wasn't bad, but it was too long as well. It was, I think they could have done the same match, told a better story in about 10 minutes. It just, that extra time for whatever reason slowed it down and it, it kind of felt like a, a weight on, on the match. It just seemed like they were slowing down and even accentuated where every time Billy would go down, it felt like he was in slow motion. The way that he counted and the way that Billy moved, you would think you got three great athletes in the ring. And if you didn't know Shamrock was sick, you wouldn't have known Shamrock was sick in any way by watching this match. So you got three really great athletes in there and the greatest natural athlete in WWF history, Billy Gunn, um, just seemed like he was moving in slow motion, which took away from it a little bit to me, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't terrible, but it sure as hell wasn't anything to write home about. It wasn't like, Oh my God, that Val Venus Ken Shamrock match. And in a lot of ways, you know, the, the show was kind of designed that way that you didn't care about anything with a lot of passion until the last few matches. Let's talk about, uh, the next match with Kane and China wrestling Hunter Hearst Helmsley and X-Pac. They go 14 minutes and 45 seconds. Melter thinks it was the best match on the show so far. and gave it two and a half stars. And it's interesting to note here that China, and I'll read this directly off the deal here. China works quote as a man end quote, rather than a gimmick, including body slamming, triple H and power slamming X-Pac. Those at ringside could clearly hear Helmsley very loudly giving China directions. And she'd react a little slow to all of his calls. Um, eventually triple H does punch China twice. She bumps for him. I'm just mentioning all this because it does seem like something we wouldn't have seen in a long, we hadn't seen in a long time, but then at the Royal rumble, we saw Nia Jax be involved physically with the men. This was not presented funny. Ha ha. It was presented legitimately. What'd you think of that? I didn't like it. I, I felt it came off unrealistic to me and it was, it was a gimmick. The, I thought that the guys sold too much for China, but you know, everybody has their preferences. Uh, for me, I, I didn't, I didn't care for it. Uh, you sit there and you watch triple H and you watch, X-Pac and Kane and they're, they're in there and they're busting their ass and doing all this stuff. I'm not saying China didn't bust her ass too. And she was very unique. I just didn't think it fit. It, it just seemed odd to me every time that she got in there and it was, there was no compensation for it. If that makes any sense. It's like, 
I felt she needed more of an equalizer than just being straight up going in there and, and bumping triple H and Xbox the way she did. That's all. Let's talk about the, uh, X-Pac and Shane McMahon fight to the back. Triple H whips Kane into the ring steps. He sets up a pedigree on China. Kane comes back in, choke slams him, and then puts China on top for the pin. China getting the pin. Cheap heat or good for her? I mean, I know, I know you weren't a fan of it, but talk me through. Obviously, you know, Hunter doesn't have a problem with it. It's his person at the time. How did everybody else feel about it? I, I just think it was a cheap pop for me. And it it's what did, Kane, what did Kane think? What did Waltman think? What did Shane think? What did, what did the other people involved here think? They were the ones coming up with the ideas for it. So I, I guess they really didn't have a problem with it. Uh, Russo and McMahon didn't have a problem with it. And I may have been in the minority what not did, liking it. What did Pat, um, think? Pat enjoyed it. Yes. Pat enjoyed it. A locker room leader, like the undertaker. Where's he? I don't know. I, I really, I really don't know. I don't think that, that she would have done those same spots with him. And I don't think that he would put himself in that position just in general. Right. So that, that look, man, it's old school. People say I'm a male chauvinist and misogynistic and all the other shit. I just don't, I was raised a different way in a different time. And, um, guys didn't hit women, didn't matter what. And that's when that's your upbringing, <laughs> you know, for going on 56 years, then it just sticks with you. And it, it's, I don't know. I just didn't like it. It's, it's a feel. And a lot of people did. And I wasn't one of them. Let's talk about mankind. Meltzer would say mankind presumably retained his WWF title going to a no contest with the rock in 2154. They did the 10 count knockout rule and to get people to understand the spot early, mankind hit rock with the title belt and they sold the 10 count with rock beating the count. They do an interesting match here. Uh, I, I'm not going to say it's their best match that they had, but it's certainly not bad. Uh, they're doing a lot of crazy spots, lots of, uh, chair shots and I guess we should mention here, mankind's using the Sako claw and rock uses the rock bottom and both collapse. And it appears that both guys are down and this is going to be a, your 10 count finish, but it's not. They both get up and deliver simultaneous chair shots and they both go down for the 10 count at the same time. So it's a double knockout. Meltzer would write the fans hated the finish booing heavily. They tried to sell the brutality of it with both going out on stretchers and taking away in twin ambulances. They need to emphasize more on television to their audience that nobody cares about winning and losing. And these poor souls in Memphis who didn't want a non-finish just didn't get it. Still, you can't fault the work in this match. Three and three quarter stars, best match on the card so far, you know, with the, the, the stairs and the chair shots. I mean, they're pulling out all the stops. It's a fun match, but fuck this finish ruined it. Did it not? I don't think it ruined it. I, I really don't. I, they gave him a hell of a match. Uh, Mick didn't want to do the job. No, I'm kidding. Uh, um, 
surprised somebody didn't say that. It was it was a way, again, so that you could get that one more decisive win. Just get we'll get one more out of it. It was a creative finish, and it came across again. Your idea, the idea of a finish like that, is to get heat to piss people off. So to that extent, it worked. And sometimes you want that reaction. The crowd was so pissed off they were chanting bullshit. So they were upset at the outcome of the match, not the finish. They're upset at the outcome of the match. There's no winner. They wanted a winner. They didn't get it. Maybe you'll get it next time. And that's storytelling. So the finish to me didn't bother me, and I thought the match was very good. And the creative was damn creative as far as the finish goes and how they pulled it off to get one more out of it. I actually like the finish, but man, when you watch it back now, that fucking crowd did bullshit. Bullshit. Brutal. That was crazy. So let's talk a little bit about the next match, because this is why we're really here. At least my opinion, it's Austin and McMahon in a cage match. And Austin's out first. McMahon comes out second. They start fighting through the crowd and it's pretty hot for the first several minutes. They're all into it. And then you do notice that, um, maybe they weren't exactly sure what to do. Perhaps I'm going to make this suggestion. Maybe Vince was blown up. I mean, he's not a guy who's in uh ring shape. They say that's a different thing than being in shape. I, of course, am in no shape unless you count round, which I guess that's technically a shape. But then they do the big cage bump. And this is what everybody still remembers about this. Besides the finish is they're climbing up the side of the cage and McMahon flies off and tries to go through the table, but it looks like he really hurts his tailbone in the process, but they don't stop the match, even though they do come out to get him on a stretcher, but that doesn't happen. The match continues. Uh, McMahon gets thrown into the cage and he's busted open for what Meltzer would call a big time juice job. And then Austin goes to leave, but the defiant McMahon flips him off again. So Austin comes back, hits the stunner, but then Paul white came from under the ring and then he threw Austin into the cage, which collapsed from the impact and Austin wound up on the floor for the win two and three quarter stars, a couple things to talk about. Austin coming out first, whether or not you thought Vince was uh, winded or lost in the match, the tailbone spot, uh, if you guys were really concerned that he was really hurt there, McMahon bleeding in the match a lot, and then we'll, we'll table the big show talk for a minute, but carry me through the match up until that point. Well, as far as the the guys being winded, it it was designed that way. It was designed to have Austin being the seasoned pro, the veteran versus the guy that's never been in the ring before Vince McMahon, the the owner, the, the guy that sits behind a desk, you know, and he's a big executive. So Steve's out there to whip his ass and it was meant to go up and down to give him a breather. He being Vince. The spot off the fucking cage. Well, I thought he was dead. Scared the living shit out of me. 
Because when he took that bump and the table didn't go on impact, there's that moment of hesitation. And then that fucker collapsed. It, he hit hard right on the edge where there is no give at all. So you, I mean, it, it was like, we all just felt it. It hit and time stopped for that moment of impact that you're thinking, is he alive? And then he rolled over and he just stayed there. So we didn't get word back. We really didn't get word back until Hebner and Gary and all those guys came back. Is he all right? And Vince told everybody, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. But his back was pretty bruised up and pretty messed up. That's for damn sure. But it was, he, he took that bump. Um, I couldn't tell you how many times, not with the table, but the distance, the height, everything, man. He took that bump three or four times at least practicing for it. He knew exactly where to be. He knew exactly where to go and live conditions. He was just off. Uh, probably less than a quarter of an inch. And it, it, it bruised him up pretty damn good. But, uh, the, the match was, you know, I'm sitting there watching it going, I love it because Vince didn't work like a worker. Right. He worked, he worked like a 53 year old man who was in his first, you know, match and it was a fight and he was clumsy and he was stumbling I like that. To me, that you know just adds authenticity to the match. So um, I, I enjoyed the fuck out of the match, and I enjoyed the the whole story that they told. Finally, getting them in the cage, and every time Austin would get out, Vince, you know, one finger flip off. Well, that's bad. I'm gonna come back and whip your ass. But goddamn it, you gave me a two finger flip off. I'm fucking you up. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it was the you go back and just watch the way that Austin plays with that audience with the most subtle of looks is pure genius and absolutely magical that a lot of people just don't have today. It was so understated and he, I mean, God, he owned that audience and they reacted to every fucking thing he did. And it, it was just, it was an incredible thing to watch and, and just go back all these years later and go, shit, that was, that was pretty good. Talk to me about Vince, uh, quote unquote, getting color or doing a big time juice job, whatever Meltzer said here. Yeah. He got himself some color, man. in there, he, he wanted to do that. That was part of it. You know, Austin promising by God, I'm not only gonna whip your ass. I'm going to make you bleed. I'm going to wipe your spit off my face with your blood. Um, he felt that was an important part of the match, uh, for people to, that was Vince getting his comeuppance, you know, who thought you'd ever see that, you know, in the one match he got whacked and it, it's funny. So many times when Vince would have planned to get color, would have liked to nine times out of 10, not this time, but nine times out of 10, he would get a hard way somewhere else. I would say it's funny. It's not funny, but it was kind of funny odd that that would happen. And, uh, it just added to the drama of the match. You just knew that, that it was over at that point. It's surreal to see 
McMahon bleeding like this, because you got to think, you know, and I know you, you get sort of weird talking about it sometimes, but somebody had to make it for him. I mean, he didn't make his own, right? I mean, did somebody sort of coach him up of hey, here's where you put it and here's how you do it. And don't forget to do this or who's sort of yeah. talking to him. Who's sort of holding his hand through that process. And I don't mean that disrespectful. If you've never done it, you got to have somebody sort of coach you up. Uh, a lot of guys did. Uh, Tom did. I don't know who made it for him, but you know, a lot of guys gave him advice exactly what to do and how to do it. But uh, you know, Tom had shown him and quite a few of the guys did. Was McMahon nervous about the match, the table bump, the, uh, um, the gig, whatever you want to call it on the show. I know you get weird about it. So is there one thing you remember him being particularly nervous about going into this? No, I think he's always nervous going out there and, and you're, you know, there's a nervous energy. I, I think if you're not getting nervous every time you go out and perform, then there's something wrong with you. Um, he was just concerned about the match. I know that, you know, being out there and being in that type of match and taking that big bump, I, you know, he was concerned about that, but he's the type of guy. I'm going to go through it. I'm going to do it. It'll be fine. Whatever it is, it'll be fine. Not really show it, but he's an intense son of a bitch and he just wants to get it all right. Talk to me a little bit about, um, the decision to have Paul white debut this way. When did you guys come to that as a way to debut him? Shoo. I don't know. Um, that was a, that was a, a decision obviously that, that Vince McMahon and Russo had talked about in the way to introduce him. There was some debate about doing it here because the logical then Next step is you want to see that match, and we weren't going there at WrestleMania. You know, I was like, "See, that's what I struggle with." First of all, it doesn't feel like the original finish for this match. Do you know if another finish was ever discussed? Not one that I heard. And you know, I knew that we had been talking to Paul, and negotiations had been going back and forth, and then I knew when we got him, but people started talking about how to, how to bring him in. And for example, my idea was not to bring him in until after WrestleMania and bring him in right on top, going after Austin. Did let him, you know, God damn, he'd been off TV. Let him stay off TV. Let him percolate. People forget about the giant. And then he comes out and destroys Austin after WrestleMania. And you've got a, a ready-made match there. It didn't make a lot of sense to me. I, don't get me wrong. I love the spot. I absolutely love the spot and the whole way that it, it worked and it was flawless. But as far as the introduction of a major character like that, it was pretty cool, but he wasn't successful. You know, basically he helped Steve win the fucking match. Um, just a lot of philosophical things that I did not necessarily agree with, but that was Vince McMahon. That's how he wanted to do it and felt this was the time for him to make a big impact. And just him being there was the impact and didn't think people would care about, well, Austin won and it was big show that threw him, you know, threw him out. Well, forget about that. 
chocolate and vanilla. It seems so weird to me because I thought the same thing you did. Like if you're not going to do anything with big show and, um, stone cold, why have this as a finish? And it also felt weird to debut him on a pay-per-view at the time to me, because it does feel like something you would want to do on raw. Clearly the Monday night wars or whatever you guys are winning weeks and months in, in a row here, but it does feel like something you would have tried to do because he's coming from the other channel instead of doing it on a pay-per-view. Do you remember, was any other way discussed about possibly debuting big show? Well, like I said, I mean, my idea was to debut him the night after WrestleMania on raw and have him come out and destroy Austin. No, I mean, besides, and, I'm like, I know that was your idea. I don't mean to be dismissive of that, I, but did, did Russo say, what if we did that? Cause you've also said that Russo was sort of Vince's right-hand man for some of the creative at the time. Do you remember? Oh, Russo, definitely he was. Do you remember Russo having a different pitch that for whatever reason they said, nah, let's just do it here. I, I don't know if it was Russo or McMahon's idea because from them, I always heard pretty much a unified front as far as debuting him here at the Valentine's day massacre or internally, if they discussed anything else from, from them to me and our Vince McMahon and I had this talk at the TV studio when we first brought Paul into the office and introduced him to everybody. And Vince and I went back and forth on it a little bit. He said, cause I understand that you, uh, you're thinking, bringing him in a little differently. And I said, yeah, I said, I just don't, we know where we're going. We've got it. We don't need anything else to get to WrestleMania with Steven rock. So why do we need him now? You know, this minute for this pay-per-view for this match. And he says, Bruce, it's impact. It's, it's the first time you see him, he makes impact, but it's not a positive impact. He's failing with his impact. No one will remember that. Um, so, okay, you know, great. Let's go make this the best it can be. But I don't, I think that for the most part, a lot of people felt it was a little lackluster because he, he failed. <laughs> yeah, that's the best I could say. And there was also a feeling with Big Show that he wanted to work. Big Show wanted to wrestle. He wanted to show people that he was more than just a giant, that he was a big man that could actually have matches. Well, that's great, and he's turned into a pretty damn great worker. At the time, he wasn't that worker that he thought he was. And he was a giant. He was a novelty. He was an attraction. And I felt he should have been treated a little more special than throwing him into the mix and into the fire the way they did. But let's talk about the actual execution of this. How the fuck do you sneak a seven foot, 400 pound dude under the ring in the middle of the show? It's out there all night. Holy shit. That's what I needed to hear. The big show was out there from the time the doors opened for the fans to come in all the way till the end of the night. Yeah. Welcome to the big leagues kid. Right. Yeah. Here's your Gatorade bottle. Oh, I think he had a, he had a few of those had an ice chest. He had, uh, had a box lunch. I think had a, a little mattress thing to, to lay on all covered up. He basically had a little condominium under the ring. 
So it's like he built a, a, a children's fort under the fucking ring and yes. it's there for hours and hours and hours. And this is his first night in the new company. Now, obviously he left WCW because, and we're going to do a whole big show show. I'm sure one day, but he leaves WCW because he's not happy with his contract. So he's got the money side like he wants, but your first day in get the fuck under the ring. See you in five hours. It wasn't like we didn't give him a box lunch and some waters and some place to pee. All he right. had a TV. He but could watch the show. Didn't no, even have to pay for the pay-per-view. Well, Vince probably took it out of his check. Now the, the rumor innuendo is that once upon a time, big show took a shit so foul under the ring that people were vomiting. He didn't take a shit at this show, right? Cause that would just be the best possible way to make your debut with a new company. No, I don't believe he took a shit this show. Okay. Um, we'll talk about the big show. I'm sure another time, I, this whole story fascinates me. I'm really excited to, uh, to cover it sometime. Uh, who do you remember coming up with the little tidbit about the cage collapsing? Is that a Russo idea? Cause it's fucking incredible. I think it was, it had to be one of the Vince's <coughs> pardon me. Uh, it had to be one of the Vince's and that's where the first time I heard it. I heard it first from Vince McMahon, and that's when we were discussing the whole Paul White issue. And the name, I always hated, I hated the name The Big Show at first. Didn't get it, didn't like it. I thought, God, Vince, it's so hard to say The Big Show. Now I can't imagine him with any other name. But when he came out, it was, what do we call him? Who do we say? We're not going to call him The Big Show right out of the box. And Vince opted to, to call him his name. He said, we didn't want to do the, who is this man? This giant of a man didn't want to do that bullshit. So just call him by his name, which I disagreed with too, but it was better than who is this man or, oh my God, it's the big show. Nobody, people go, no, that's a giant from WCW. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's him. Let's talk a little bit about. Vince McMahon's performance, you know, obviously Meltzer's pretty critical at times, but check this out. The 53 year old McMahon who had never worked a lengthy match was out there for 19 minutes between a lengthy pre-match brawl and an actual cage match took one of the craziest bumps you'll ever see and was far less limited as a performer than anyone had the right to expect. He continues Meltzer in the match will be remembered. Sorry. McMahon in the match will be remembered for taking a bump backwards while climbing the cage about three quarters of the way up and crashing through the Spanish announcer's table for a man of his age, who had a legitimate neck surgery in 1994 to take a bump normally reserved for Shawn Michaels certainly made a statement about bravado ego, or maybe a little insanity. And he continues, but wow, pretty glowing praise there for a guy who clearly doesn't have to do this, putting himself out there. Did Vince, uh, get the respect of the boys that night? Or were some of the guys still looking for something to be negative about and say, oh, he's taking these big bumps and trying to get himself over. What do you remember? Well, they thought he was crazy and it was main. It was respect. It was respect because first of all, anybody that's ever worked with old blue, um, working that cage had no give. And you'll also notice was the last time old blue was used or big blue, whatever the fuck. Because Vince worked in it. 
so when Vince started working and getting in the ring, the rings changed, became more bump friendly. <laughs> then when he worked in old blue, then by God, the cage changed to a much more forgiving cyclone fence. So that was, that was the joke on, on my end that thank God Vince started taking bumps so that we could get a bump friendlier ring. And thank God he worked in that big cage so that we could get a cyclone fence where guys could do a little bit more with it. Uh, but I think for the most part, guys respected Vince for what he did when he went out there and busted his ass and, and he looked good. He put the work in, he didn't take any shortcuts. The son of a bitch was over. He was the most over guy in the territory. He and Austin. So the fact that they were over, we were drawing the houses was directly reflected in their checks. <laughs> so they were happy. More power to them. What do you think of this match? I mean, did it live up to the hype? You've had all this build, as you said, 10 months, it's going to be nearly impossible to pay that off. You watched it this week for the first time in a long time. what did you think? Did it live up to the hype? I did. And it gave you, it gave you your satisfaction and that Steve wins. Steve's going to WrestleMania. If Steve busted up, Mr. McMahon bloodied him up. He got his revenge, but wait, there's more. There was still some meat left on the bone. And for the first official big match one-on-one -on -one with Vince, I thought it definitely lived up to the hype and probably over-delivered. I think anybody thought they were going to see some stupid bump like he did to the uh, table. And I just don't think that they thought he was going to be uh, as good as he was. So, I mean, he, he definitely busted his ass out there. Let's talk a little bit about... Um, the actual pay-per-view itself, you know, it really is a one match show, or at least the way people remember it. They don't remember the double knockout. They remember Vince McMahon's performance in the main event. How do you rate it? Scale of one to 10. Overall, I thought it was probably a six just because to me, there were only two matches that were really worth the rest of the matches were Monday night, raw matches. They weren't bad just weren't good. And the, the last two matches, uh, were exceptional. Well, and we're hoping the next week's episode is exceptional because we're going to be bringing you no way out 2004. You've been looking forward to this one for a long time because it's the crowning moment of the late great Eddie Guerrero. Give everybody an idea, an idea of what we're going to talk about next week. The fight, <laughs> the ongoing fight that became a reality because of Brock's decision to want to go play football of crowning Eddie Guerrero as the champion for the SmackDown brand. And it was an uphill battle that I don't think a lot of people really, really got behind. And it was a, it was a constant fight and finally got Vince McMahon on board, but just the different philosophies going in to this pay-per-view and the general feeling behind it where you're trying to get to a lame duck match with Brock and Goldberg and you're trying to crown the next generation and a completely different kind of champion in Eddie Guerrero. So um, No Way Out 2004 was a 
it was a monumental stepping stone in the WWF for some of the smaller guys. And you can thank Eddie Guerrero for that. That's what's coming up next week. But the week after that, we need your help. The polls are live right now. Go check it out. If you haven't already at Pritchard show, and we need you to vote before the end of SmackDown, because that's when the polls are going to shut down. So tell your friends, go to at Pritchard show on Twitter, throw us a follow and then vote in the poll and then stay tuned to listen to that episode in just two weeks from today. And also want to mention, uh, maybe you've been living under a rock. Starcast is coming back and you and I have been talking about what you might be able to do. And you've got a few tricks up your sleeve this year. Don't you Brucey? You never really know what could happen. Let's well, just leave it at that. You never really know, but I'm going to be there by God. I was the big name you announced, right? Uh, yes, that's exactly right. We, yeah. we didn't announce sting or Bret Hart Who? or Jr or anybody else, but yes, you are the big name. The rumor and innuendo is Eric Bischoff will be there. Tony Schiavone will be there. Sean Mooney will be our host. And the names are going to keep rolling. If you haven't already, go follow it on Twitter at Starcast Events. And be sure to check out Starcast.com. Tickets go on sale next Friday. If you enjoy what we're doing here, whew, you see this lineup, you're going to be uh, pretty fired up. It's Las Vegas, Memorial Day weekend. And of course, the EW's got a big show that weekend called Double or Nothing. You never know what might happen there. They went all in last September in Chicago. And now the boys are back and they're going double or nothing in Las Vegas. And you should definitely check out Starcast. That's S T A R R C A S T. Uh, we're going to have lots of fun on the shows as we build to there because these announcements are going to involve a lot of your old buddies here, Bruce. Well, I'm looking forward to it. And, you know, the other crazy thing when I think of this Valentine's Day massacre was it was on February 14th. Next day, obviously, the 15th, uh, we had a live Monday Night Raw in Birmingham, Alabama. And I got a phone call as I was walking down the steps right after Raw went off the air. And it was my wife telling me that her water had broken and she was in the hospital getting ready to deliver my children. So I remember going up to Vince and saying, hey, Vince, uh, Steph's in the hospital and um, the kids are coming. And I'd, I'd really like to go home. And he just looked at me and said, you do what you think you need to do. <laughs> and Jerry Briscoe drove me to the airport and I made it home. And February 16th was a big day. And I just always remember this pay-per-view because February 16th, Kane and Amber Pritchard were born and they're celebrating their 20th birthday. God, February 16th. That's just really scary. You know, something me and you never talked about. I was at that raw. Damn. I mean, I didn't know that, that this was that momentous for you, but my, my dad bought, uh, tickets for the show and took me myself and my sister. And I was like, why the fuck do I have to go with my sister? But whatever dad got us tickets. So I was excited. And, uh, I saw, and nobody even noticed him, but Dr. Death, Steve Williams was hanging out like where you're not really supposed to, it's in the backstage area, but it's sort of halfway. Like it could have been an entrance for a house show back in the day where it's just a series of doors. But he was just standing there in like uh wind pants or not sweatpants, but you know what I mean? Like a windsuit and a t-shirt tucked in. He's just got his arms folded watching the show and nobody's bothering him. And I'm like, holy shit, that's fucking Dr. Death, Steve Williams. And you know, everybody's paying attention to the headbanger match or whatever going on and paying him no mind. And I thought this is the most random thing ever. This is pretty cool. That was supposed to be his debut. 
Well, Vince called it off audible. Well, there you go. Uh, and, and you had to call an audible because, uh, your wife's new album was dropping. It's a, it was a double album and, and it's apparently gone platinum over the last there 20 years. So <laughs> happy early birthday to Camber. Kane Camber. Amber. Oh my God. Camber. Yeah. There you go. I'm just going to start calling them Camber from now on. Can I just tell you too? Can I just vote officially that I like Amber better than Kane? Well, that hurt. Well, I mean, you do too. Fuck off. No, I don't. Well, I love them both the same Conrad now. Okay. Tune in next week for more lies for Bruce Pritchard here on something to wrestle with. Shaka Khan. What about Bruce Pritchard? I'm supposed to say Bruce Pritchard at the end. Say Bruce Pritchard. Then can we get a run in from Camber next week? Bruce Pritchard, please. Camber. 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 If you think there's not going to be a Camber t-shirt soon, you're wrong. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.